A reading from the Gospel of John. The true light that shines on all people was coming into the world. The light was in the world, and the world came into being through the light, but the world did not recognize the light. The light came to his own people, and his own people didn't welcome him. But those who did welcome him, those who believed in his name, he authorized to become God's children, born not from blood, nor from human desire or passion, but born from God. The word of the Lord. All right, amen. Thank you. So it is the third Sunday of Advent, this season of waiting for the birth of the Christ child on Christmas. Um, and, you know, obviously Advent doesn't really mean that much without Christmas to wait for, but I think it's important to remember that we can't experience the fullness of Christmas without also having this season of waiting. Um, I was thinking about it this week, and I think in some ways it's like that moment right before a concert starts. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever been to a concert that you're just really, really excited for, but you get to the venue and you're there surrounded by all these other people who are fans of the same artist. You've all spent hours listening to this person's music. Um, and I don't know, this could be whatever it is for you. It could be your favorite artist. It could be Taylor Swift Eras Tour, Woodstock, the live music at Pig Pickin' for Oak Church, kind of things of that category. Um, so you get there and when you're in the venue, there's this moment where the lights go down and you can see the band walk onto the stage. And you can feel the anticipation in the air. There's this excitement as guitars are tuned and mics are adjusted as you wait for the first song. Now, you probably are going to know every song that gets played. You might even know what, exactly what the opening song is. But that doesn't take away from the excitement. There's still this suspense. It's not a suspense that comes from the complete uncertainty of what's going to happen next, but it's a waiting to receive something that's familiar and beloved, but in a fresh way. So I think that's what Advent is. Like we've all heard the Christmas story countless times, but in this time of waiting and preparation, we are trained to behold this mystery, the mystery of the incarnation with new eyes. So as we wait, Christians across lots of different traditions and for centuries have found that we can prepare ourselves well to encounter the birth of Christ by meditating on four themes that come during Advent. So we have uh, hope, peace, joy, and love. And this is the third week of Advent, so we normally reflect on joy, which is what we're going to do this morning. We're going to be in the opening part of John's Gospel, the text that we've been going through in this Advent season. Um, you know, instead of giving the, the Christmas story, the story of Jesus' birth, like Matthew and Luke does, John gives us this really poetic prologue that's filled with this big cosmic language that helps us understand the significance of God becoming one of us and coming to the earth. Our passage for today starts by describing Jesus as the true light. It says that the true light that shines on all people 
was coming into the world. Now, we've been thinking a lot about light over the past few weeks. Um, during Advent, we begin each service by lighting our candles on our wreath, which symbolizes this light that comes to us in the darkness. And Toph kicked off this season by sharing about this light, this light that is Jesus, but that is also these Advent themes. This light is uh, hope and peace and joy and love, of these themes that find their center in Jesus. He shared with us that the darkness doesn't extinguish the light. Now, the darkness is anything that is against the light. So we think instead of hope and peace and joy and love, it's despair and violence and sorrow and hate. These things threaten the light, but the light will win in the end. So there's light and there's darkness. But in our passage this morning, we learn that there's something else that threatens the light, something that's maybe more subtle than the darkness. See, the true light, the light that created the world, shines on all people. But we then find out that the world didn't recognize this light. So how could this be? How could the light be shining on all people, but not all people recognize it? Well, John specifically tells us that Jesus is the true light, which I guess implies that there are false or artificial lights, things that might appear to be like the light and draw people in, but in reality, they're far from the true light. Now, these don't necessarily have to be bad things. In the context of this passage in John, the immediate thing that's contrasted with the true light is John the Baptist. Now, John is certainly not bad. In fact, Jesus says that he is the greatest among those born of women. But if someone were to devote their entire life to following John the Baptist, they would miss out on the true light. They would miss out on Jesus, this light that John was pointing to with his life. Now, there are plenty of other artificial lights that, which could prevent us from reaching out uh, to the true light. So if the true light is hope, we might get caught up in optimism, something that's just a little bit off. If the true light is peace, we might get caught in relaxation. The true light is this deep, faithful, long-suffering love of God. We could easily get caught in the nice and neat hallmark version of love. Now let me give another illustration of this. Uh, next week, I'm going to be in New York City visiting my brother who lives in Brooklyn. And if you've ever been to a big city, um, any city, at night, you'll notice that at you, when you look up, you can't see the stars. Now, obviously, this isn't because the stars are not shining on New York City, however poetic that might sound. <laughs> they're, they're up there, but we can't see them because there are these other lights that are so bright and so close that the, the light from the stars gets drowned out. The true light shines on all people, but the world did not recognize the light. The light of Christ and the light of hope and peace and joy and love are so easily drowned out by the brightness and closeness of these other almost versions of those things. Now, this is certainly the case with joy. 
in this consumer culture that we live in, we're constantly surrounded by uh, products and services and experiences and trends that promise us something that sounds really close to joy. They offer things like amusement and bliss and charm and cheer, comfort, satisfaction. According to thesaurus.com, these are the strongest synonyms for joy. And when we compare those to the true joy, they sound so close, but they ring so hollow. We hear this message from advertisers, but we also hear it from the self-help manuals that try to persuade us of the power of positive thinking. Um, every week, my roommate and I go to study at NAMU, which is a coffee shop in between Durham and Chapel Hill. And every week, I see this decorative sign um, that's in there. And I think about it a lot. It reminds us to smile, giggle, and be silly. Now, I'm as big a fan of these activities as anyone. Um, but the world is not breathless in anticipation for us to smile and giggle and be silly. The world is not waiting vigilantly for a good disposition, for a positive outlook. No, the world is longing to be captured by joy. So the question becomes, how do we tell the difference between joy, this true deep joy, and its shallow imitations? Well, I think that if we keep reading in our passage from John, we get a little bit of a clue. In verses 12 and 13, we see that those who did welcome Jesus, who believed in his name, became children of God, born not of blood or human passions or desires, but born from God. So there's something about the true light that invites us into a reality that is not our own, not of our own making. It's from God. I think we can think about joy in a similar way. It's, something, it's not something that we manufacture for ourselves, but it's something that we receive as a gift from God. Put differently, joy isn't something that we hold and continue to try to uphold, but true joy holds us and continues to hold us no matter what season we find ourselves in. Let's think back to this example of New York City to try to illustrate this. The light of the stars and the light that comes at 2 a.m. in an office suite on the 49th floor might seem really similar, right? They seem like they're both beacons of light shining in the darkness. But I think when we look closely, we can see that there's something very different about these two lights. The office light is a light that keeps us moving, working late into the night on a project. It's a light that comes with an expectation, an expectation that we can always be doing more and that more is always going to be better. This light enables us to keep up with that ever-turning wheel of progress. And we can choose to turn it off, but we do so at the peril of our own careers. We technically control this light, but as the cliche goes, it sometimes feels like this light is controlling us. But starlight is different. Starlight is the stuff of poets. We might understand more today about those distant balls of gas in space 
but they've been shining for way before we could ever understand anything about them. And even today, even as we know things about stars, they never cease to capture the imagination of these wide-eyed human onlookers. They shine whether or not we are awake to see them, whether or not we decide to appreciate them. They shine on war-torn nations and neatly arranged suburbs, over cities and over the wilderness. There's nothing that we could give to their light in return. And even though they might seem distant as they illuminate us with these beams that are literally from another time, there are moments where they feel so intimately close, like we ourselves might get caught up in their celestial splendor and held in their subtle embrace. Now, the point of comparing the office light and the starlight is not to say city bad, country good, or to make some blanket denunciation of working late at night on a project. But I think that it is a helpful illustration of these two kinds of joy. There's this counterfeit joy that comes when we continue to uh, go to the right places, the best places on vacation. We consume the best content. We sign up for the best activities, all these things that we keep having to maintain. And then there's the true joy that comes from Jesus, which is faithfully made available to us and yet can still break into our lives in these unexpected and glorious ways. So with this being said, what is this joy that comes from Jesus, and where does it come from, and how do we experience it? So to explore these questions, we're going to move forward just a little bit in John's gospel to the start of Jesus' ministry, um, which is the famous story of the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water into wine. And we're not going to read it um, this morning, but I do have the words on the screen. What we see here in this story is that of all the potential options for how Jesus could have started his ministry, he begins at a party, gathered with people who are there for a celebration. I think this, as much as any of his teachings, says something about the character of what this ministry is going to be all about. But this isn't just any party. This is a party that has run out of wine, that has promised too much and given it too soon. We like to think that we can turn our lives into a kind of perpetual party and that the wells of joy that we dig for ourselves will never run dry. I can hear the words of uh, singer-songwriter Joe Pug. He says that we live in a culture where the, Chris where the party starts on Monday and Christmas starts in June. Inevitably, we realized that maybe we started the festivities a little too early and we lacked the sufficient resources to keep it all up. So in this story, Jesus steps into this situation of lack and he responds with a gift of miraculous abundance, providing wine that was even better than the wine that was served before. Now there are a few important things to notice about Jesus' solution here. First, Jesus turns the water into real wine, which seems like a really obvious thing to point out, but so often when we think about the joy that comes from Jesus, 
we think about something that we have to close our eyes and really try to imagine as best as we can, something that exists up in our heads. But Jesus didn't come and give them an idea at this party or a vision. He gave them wine. And what's more, this is the same thing than, that they just had run out of. It was better wine than they had served, but he doesn't replace the wine with champagne or try to convince them that actually water is really just as good as wine. <laughs> no, Jesus and the host, they served the same thing, but the wine that was from Jesus was marked by abundance and sweetness. So why, why are these things important? Well, so far I've been pretty hard on the joy that we try to create for ourselves. But I also want us to know that many of the things that give us enjoyment are not bad. This time of year is filled with all sorts of ordinary delights. We spend time with family, we eat good food, play games, we sing songs, we decorate our places, and we travel to new places. And these are all really good things. But if we view them as ends in and of themselves, or the product of our own efforts, of our own hands, it won't take long before the joy runs dry, before the party grinds to a halt and we are left woefully unfulfilled. But when we receive them as gifts from God, they're cast in a new and truly joyful light. They're abundant because they're reflections of an abundant giver. They taste even sweeter because they come to us as little kernels of God's own beauty and truth and goodness. But these gifts are not only good because they display God's presence with us in the present. They also are a foretaste of our future reality that comes and meets us in the present. Let's think again about the wedding at Cana. This story is part of a larger theme in the Gospels where Jesus shares these abundant meals with his followers. But even these meals are not ends in and of themselves. Part of their significance is that they're reflections of this future feast, this um, heavenly banquet that is waiting for Jesus and all the saints in the new creation. This is the hope that we remember during Advent that Jesus will come to the earth again like he did in Bethlehem on that first Christmas. Only this time he'll come in royal power and establish his reign over the earth. The whole world will be restored. Every injustice will be reversed. Our crooked desires will be set right. And the whole earth will be covered in peace and joy and love. We'll be made new and we'll gather around the table for a feast, or as G Eugene Peterson likes to call it, the hallelujah banquet. It'll be a party of heavenly proportions, and in true Jesus style, everyone is invited to this. Now these good gifts that we receive from God in the present are like an advanced guard of that new creation that will one day be revealed in its fullness. Now, this hallelujah banquet might feel like a long ways off, but it is brought near to us every single week when we gather together around the communion table. 
Here, we remember the source of our salvation, which is Jesus' sacrifice on our behalf. But we also get a taste of the fruit of our salvation, a bite from that heavenly feast that Jesus is preparing for us. These ordinary elements of bread and juice contain an ancient joy, a joy that holds us no matter what. It sustains us in happiness and grief, in faith and in doubt. This is the joy that will not let you go. And if we continue to come to this table week by week, we begin to take on a new Eucharistic vision of the world around us. As we experience true joy here, we learn to see glimpses of it in the rest of our lives. In Christmas cookies, in cheesy movies, in road trips, in the beauty of winter. Glimmers of joy are all around us. Even if they're as small as a star in the sky or a candle against the darkness of night. Friends, we will one day walk in a land of pure joy. And God is inviting us to not be strangers when we get there. So let us lovingly learn to receive joy in the many forms that it takes as it comes to us today. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, we thank you for the gift of joy. God, for that deep joy that sustains us, that holds us, no matter what. God, we thank you for all of the ways that we are reminded of that joy in one another, in the gifts that you've given us in this world that reflect your goodness. God, I pray that you would make us people who are attuned to that joy, that we would receive it with empty and open hands, and God, that we would be people who participate in that joy, participate in making that joy available to the people around us. God, we thank you so much for this hope that we have in you that we remember during this season. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.